If your Bibles, let's go together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, where we left off last week. And if you need a Bible, as always, just feel free to slip your hand up quickly. The guys are coming up the aisle, and they'll be happy to give you a copy of the Scriptures so you can follow along during our Bible study this morning. Luke 20, and if you can join me there in verse 19. We kind of looked and touched a little bit on verse 19 last week, but as I said, it's to me kind of a hinge verse. It goes with the prior verses we looked at as well as it's sort of a transitional verse into what we're going to look at this morning as well. So we'll pick up reading from Luke 20 verse 19 and we'll go down through verse 26. And if you're turned there together with me, would you stand together with me out of respect for the Word of God as I read our scripture this morning. Luke 20 beginning there in verse 19 tells us, And the chief priests... And the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words, in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. And then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. And Father, we ask this morning as we open up the word of God that you'd help us just to continue in an attitude of worship. And Lord, we want to, as you said, be those who are worshipers in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I can't think of a greater way to worship you in spirit and truth than to incorporate in our worship the truth of your word. And, and you said, Jesus, if we abide in your word and the truth is given to us, that Lord, that truth would set us free. And Lord, there's lots of things in our lives we continue to need to be set free from. Wrong ideas and, and hearts that are beginning to get off track and, and misunderstandings about you or the world or what we think is your will. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the Word of God in each and every one of our lives this morning. And that your Spirit who wrote the Word of God would be our interpreter and our teacher. Lord, you know what we need and what we're asking right now as we study the scripture. So we pray, bless your word, and we ask that you would teach us and give us an attentiveness and an alertness to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Speak to us now, for we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, it seems to me that most people typically keep track of how we spend our money. A lot of people put a lot of care and effort into how they invest their money, but honestly, the more important issue, I think, is not so much how we spend our money, but to take a little more care and consideration, really, into how are we spending our lives. How are you spending your life? How are you investing your life? If we would take the time and caution and care and concern about how we spend our money, why would we not take into consideration how we spend our lives? Because we do. We have a life to spend. We have time and energy and, and this life that God has given to us and the breath in our lungs for the short vapor of the time that we're here on this earth. And we do truly spend our lives. We may not have equal amounts of money to spend, but we all have 24 hours in a day. We all have seven days in a week. We all have 365 days in a year. And how do we spend our lives well, the passage in front of us, I think Jesus is really bringing that critical issue to bear upon our hearts as we look at it together this morning. And I pray the Lord would challenge us in relation to those things. Now, remember as the backdrop, at this time, we're in the last week of Jesus' ministry and the chief priests, 
the scribes, members of the Sanhedrin. These are all a part of the religious establishment and religious leaders in Israel at this time. All of these different individuals, they want to destroy Jesus at this point during the last week of his life. It tells us a couple times we've seen now that they want to lay hands on him. But the problem was that all the common people, they loved Jesus. The religious leaders didn't like Jesus, interestingly enough, that the religious establishment were some of his greatest problems and his greatest enemies. But the common people, the Bible says, heard him gladly. The common people loved Jesus. The common people wanted to listen to Jesus. And therefore, the religious leaders feared the response that would come from the people if they just assaulted Jesus directly. And if they went after him in a direct way. Remember, we just saw last time together that Jesus had just told publicly another parable. And this parable was very revealing. The parable basically revealed how the religious leaders had had a failure in their spiritual responsibility. They were supposed to be the builders, the vine dressers in God's vineyard and to produce a spiritually fruitful environment among the nation of Israel. And they had failed in their God-given responsibility. More than that, Jesus was revealing how throughout history there was a constant and continual rejection of God's messengers and God's prophets that were sent to them time after time to turn them back to the Lord in their rebellion and turning away in different seasons in history and how ultimately that their intention, Jesus saw it in advance, their intention was even to kill the very Son of God, which they will ultimately be responsible for participating in in the crucifixion of Jesus in just a few days from this hour. Now, having told that parable, that's why verse 19 tells us that the chief priests and scribes at that very hour when they heard that, they sought to lay hands on him. But again, notice they fear the people, but they knew, verse 19, that he had just spoken this parable against them. So because they were unable to directly take Jesus to arrest him, they didn't have the authority as Jews to, to arrest someone in that culture. The Romans had that authority at the time. And because they couldn't catch Jesus and take him directly out the way they wanted to, they had to try and find a crafty way, a subtle approach that was more crafty to take Jesus down. And we see one of their efforts to do that in our passage in front of us this morning. Notice verse 20 tells us that says, So they watched him, in their animosity and hatred now, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to be able to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor, in other words, the Roman government. So here's what we have taking place. The religious leaders are now devising a plan. They're devising a plan to try and ensnare Jesus to get him in trouble with the governmental authority of Rome. See, somehow they know if they can get Jesus into trouble with civil law, they can then turn him over to see him get prosecuted by the civil government and that ultimately he will be prosecuted politically. So they begin by doing what? Verse 20 says, they begin by, it says, sending out some spies to watch Jesus, to keep an eye on him. Uh, this is almost somewhat humorous. They actually set up, you could say, surveillance on Jesus and his activities and his ministry. And it says they literally send out some spies that are looking and waiting for a good opportunity to entrap Jesus, to somehow catch him in such a way where they can trip him up and ensnare him, hoping they can get him to do or say something that they might be able to accuse him of. Take particular notice in verse 20 how it tells us that these spies... I have it underlined. It says these spies pretended to be righteous. I find that interesting. They pretended to be righteous. When you look up the word pretend in the dictionary, it's defined in this way. To give a false appearance of being something that you are not. To act a part that is not your true identity. To Give a false appearance of being something that you are not to act a part that is not your true identity. Interesting, this little phrase here, when you look at it in the Greek, is where we ultimately get our English word 
hypocrite. It's that term, the hypocrites in the Greek, which was a term in the ancient culture which described how when they would go to the theater in that day, they would hold a mask in front of their face. Have you ever seen some of these masks from the olden days where the mask was, you know, there was a pole at the bottom and you would hold it up. And the idea was that you would hold up this mask to hide your true identity so that you could play the part of someone else. You would hide your true identity and you would play the part of a character or act like you were another individual. That's the term being used here. That's the term, interestingly, where hypocrite comes from. To act or play the part by hiding your true identity and pretending to be someone else outwardly and publicly. And interesting, it tells us here, these men pretended to be righteous. In other words, they pretended to be right with God. They pretended to be holy men. They pretended to be honest, your translation may say. They pretended to be upright. And the reason why was so that they could intermingle with Jesus and his following so that they could sort of blend in among them. So they're assembling with the Lord and his people, but not for the purpose of truly worshiping. They're assembling with the Lord and his people not to worship, but instead to work out a rather unhealthy agenda. That's what verse 20 tells us. The motivation behind their assembling as pretenders, it says, was so that they might seize on his words, that's their agenda, in order to deliver him over to the power and the authority of the governor. See, they had an underlying agenda which was evil and it was pretty destructive. They had a really unhealthy motivation which was causing them to pretend and to assemble together publicly. It was really just to capitalize on any error they could find in Jesus' life and ministry because if he said something that sounded like he was in rebellion to the Roman governor, they were ready to seize on that statement so that they could portray Jesus as a leader that was planning a revolt against Rome that they could point Jesus out and paint him as someone who is just a leader who's inciting and endorsing and encouraging an ultimate rebellion against the government and authority of Rome so that they could, as it says, deliver him over to the authority of the governor as being guilty of such. Now, by way of application, let's take a minute to just notice that the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God tells us in Scripture, the Holy Spirit says that it is possible for people to pretend to be righteous. That it is possible, the Bible says, for people to pretend to be right with God, to pretend to be upright, to pretend to be honest and righteous individuals. See, just like in every other arena of life that's out there where people can pretend, the Bible tells us that people can pretend as well and be pretenders in spiritual life. That people know how to play the part. People learn how to act the role. People know how to say the right things and, and, and dress the right way and act the right way and play the whole part of really being right with God and being a pretender intermingling among the environment and circles of other spiritual individuals. They know how to play the part, but they are not at all portraying themselves for what they truly are. They're representing themselves and giving a false impression of something that they're really not. And whatever the motivation may be behind it, whatever the reason may be, the agenda may be, the Bible makes it clear, nonetheless, there are some people, even among the spiritual arenas of this earth and religious circles, who quite honestly, they are pretenders and such folks, the Bible says they're just, they're deceivers. They're deceivers. You know, the scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, in relation to the last days, where Paul says in the last days, he says perilous times will come. In other words, difficult to deal with, that the longer we go and the closer we get to the return of Jesus Christ, 
that in the last days one of the elements of darkness that's going to take place and he gives a whole list there how things will get darker and darker and men will become worse and worse Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.13 he says evil men listen and imposters will grow worse and worse deceiving and being deceived the Bible says one of the clear marks as we draw closer to the turn of Jesus Christ is there will be more imposters there will be more people pretending in the spiritual arena that they are right with God when they really are not. They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll lack the power of God there within in their life. It's just an outward pretense that they're portraying to be something that they're really not spiritually. In fact, it's important to note the Bible even tells us that those who hold positions of religious leaders and even ministers are capable of being nothing more than pretenders. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 through 15, Paul declares this. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Paul says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Do you hear Paul's reasoning? Paul says, listen, this shouldn't be a shocking thing to God's people. This shouldn't even be a shocking thing to people on the planet who get so upset when they see hypocrisy or some person uncovered as a pretender or a deceiver under the covering of the church or the banner of Christianity or whatever it may be because Paul says, listen, even Satan himself, he masquerades, he transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan is a master deceiver. He's a master of deception. That's how he ensnares people through deception that is what he does he represents himself as an angel of light that's why it always concerns if people say oh i had this near-death experience and i saw the light i saw the light well i don't necessarily know if that was god's light oh i had this i had this vision revelation of this this beautiful glorious angelic light and well, listen, that doesn't necessarily mean that that light is the Lord. The Bible says that Satan, and, and we have false cults that have been started by people who say, well, the angel Moroni came to me and, well, wait a minute. Just because it's an angel or just because it's a spirit or a light, that the, the devil himself represents and transforms himself to an angel of light. And Paul says, therefore, he says, it's no great thing if his ministers... He says, transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. That's pretty scary, isn't it? That the Bible says, not me, the Bible says that the devil has ministers. The devil has his own ministers planted among God's harvest field who transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. And they say all the Jesus, amen, hallelujah. They may incorporate the Bible in some of the things they do, and, 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 but yet they're transforming themselves into ministers of righteousness when really the Bible says they're not at all. They're pretenders. They're deceivers, ensnaring people into things that are destructive. Hey, by way of personal application, let us be ourselves because I have the capacity to do all the same things every other human being on this planet does. And let us, by nature of understanding that, be careful of somehow becoming a pretender in our own personal life. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful of becoming a pretender in some way in your own personal life. Have you recently, honestly, have you recently started down a path where you're just starting to kind of pretend a little bit. You're pretending to be something you're not. You're pretending to be somewhere in your relationship with God that you really aren't right now. You're pretending to be living in a way or in a condition when really you're not and you're just starting to pretend. You're starting to pretend with your spouse. You're starting to pretend with other believers. You're starting to pretend and represent yourself in a way that is honestly quite deceiving and you're not walking in the light. Be careful because it's possible and it's a dangerous path to go down. And by the same token, on the other side of that, be cautious, be cautious as God's child and realize there will always be the presence 
of deceitful pretending people listen it's never gonna go away it's a silly excuse oh well them hypocrites in the church or these people another one of those pretend listen that's never gonna go away okay they're just like there are pretenders in every area of business and sales there are going to be pretenders in spiritual life their presence will never cease. The important thing is to accept the reality that they're there and to understand that nowhere does the Bible that I study and you read teach that love means we're to be naive or to be gullible. God is love and God is light. And never do we forsake truth to say that we're walking in love. So nowhere does the Word of God teach that in order to be loving, I have to be naive or I have to be gullible. Jesus says, be wise as a serpent and yet gentle as a dove. To be a fruit inspector, to evaluate these things. And remember, it's possible that there can always be some people in the presence of God's gathering that are not there for the right motivation. They're not there for the right agenda. In fact, it could be a wrong purpose or a dangerous agenda. Jesus warned of wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul warned the church of Ephesus and the elders there, Acts 20, 29, saying, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And such was the case here in the days of Jesus, as it says, these spies came among the followers of the Lord and were intermingling, but they had a very dangerous agenda, it says in verse 20. They simply wanted to seize on his words to catch him saying something so that they could just turn him over and get him arrested with the authority of the governor. Verse 21 says, And then they asked him, so here's their, their bait now, they asked him saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God in truth. You can tell they're laying it on thick, can't you? Verse 22, they then ask, here's the question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now look at this with me. Before they ask the loaded question, what do they do? Before they ask the loaded question, the first thing they do is they prepare the target with lots of flattery. Have you ever experienced the same kind of thing where before somebody fires the loaded question, they are trying to heavily prepare you with all kinds of compliments and flattery. And before they fire away the loaded question at Jesus, they say many complimentary things about him in verse 21. They say, teacher, we know and you say rightly, you don't show personal favoritism, but you always teach the way of God and truth. So they really prepare the way saying these things. Now, What's ironic is though these are Jesus' enemies trying to ensnare, entrap, and destroy him, ironically, what they say is all still true about him. Isn't that quite interesting? But the Bible we read tells us that God even uses the wrath of men to praise him. And exactly what they say about Jesus, though they have a wrong agenda, is really true about him. Jesus does not show personal favoritism. And Jesus is not a respecter of persons. Jesus does not honestly show personal favoritism or respect someone because they're more wealthy than someone else or because they're more influential in the society than someone else or because they're a particular race or nationality or because they're older or younger or more educated. Jesus doesn't show partiality to anyone. Jesus doesn't show more partiality to the poor and to the sick and, and give them special freedoms and options because they're already suffering with maybe someone who isn't and, and so therefore he, he's going to change the rules because you're already really going through a hard time so we're going to give you special concessions for sin. And sometimes on the other end, well, because I'm going through this and I'm a victim, I get special concessions. Because I'm struggling and suffering, I get a special concession to be mean and rude and unloving to everybody because I've been hurt. So I've been hurt, so I have a right and a little concession that God gives to me in my woundedness to be mean and vindictive and treat my spouse or other people around me mean because I've been hurt. And listen, I'm not trying to be unloving. I'm just trying to be honest on both ends of the scale. Jesus doesn't give favoritism to anybody. Jesus keeps the line the same for everybody. He doesn't show partiality to any person. Jesus is not impressed with anybody. 
He loves us all equally and he holds us all to the same just and righteous standard. And I appreciate a God that does that because our world doesn't do that. I appreciate this about God. It's a wonderful thing. And the spirit of Christ within us should cause us to treat and interact with people the same way. The spirit of Jesus in me and the spirit of Jesus in you as he dwells in you should lead you to treat all people the same way. You should never be a respecter of persons. And I should never show personal favoritism to any particular person for one reason or on one side of the spectrum or another. And they say of Jesus as well that he says things rightly. He teaches the way of God in truth. And that was true about Jesus. Look at his earthly ministry and his teaching in the gospels. Jesus never minced words. It's one of the things I really love about the Lord and what I love about reading the Gospels is Jesus never, he never minced words. He never adjusted what he said for the crowds or to accommodate anyone. Again, this went with that not showing favoritism. Jesus never held back from speaking the truth directly and very honestly. And it's not that Jesus was not loving the fact that he was loving, he spoke the truth honestly. The Bible I read says faithful are the wounds of a friend. Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And because he's such a good friend, you, know, you can tell who your true friends are, right? Because they're the ones that will tell you something like, oh, your breath is really stink. You need a piece of gum, man. Or, you know, you got a bat in the cave here. You need to take care. And your friends will just tell you stuff that other people won't tell you, right? And because Jesus is our friend and he loves us so much, he just says things direct, and honest but that's refreshing and really it's helpful it's liberating and I appreciate the fact that Jesus no matter who he shared with or what the consequences is always honest especially in moral and spiritual matters and again can I say for us as the Bible says that Christ lives in us the spirit of Jesus dwells in you when we speak to people I don't think we should be rude I'm not saying that we should be unkind or we should become cynical, or, but I think we should be people who are refreshingly honest as Christians. And listen, all the more in the culture and generation we are living in today where people are becoming extremely brazen in evil and wickedness and ungodliness. You know, my oldest daughter just at the dinner table the other day just said to me, she said, you know what, Dad, I've just come to realize you can't be passive and, you know, and, and, and some of the things that you shared, she says, I'm starting to realize with people my age, you just, you just have to be direct. In the same way that they're foul-mouthed and nasty and disgusting, she says, you just, I just have to be direct. Look, this is the truth. And this is eternal reality. And, and, and it's almost as if our culture beckons us because of how brazen they are with their agenda and the way that, what's, what's so wrong with us being honest about things? What's so wrong with us being honest about what's righteous and not pretending to be something we're not? Look, this is what we believe because this is what the Bible says. And what's wrong with us being as direct and honest and just speaking the truth and saying things rightly to people in conversations that when we're talking to somebody that we well I don't want to say this to them because you know they're an important person and they might th wait a minute the truth let's just share the truth with everybody whether they're rich like Donald Trump or whether they're a homeless person in Atlantic City the truth just tell them the truth about God's love and God's standards and Jesus did that though they're saying what they are about Jesus is true their motive, unfortunately, as we said, is what's corrupt. And that's the problem here. They're just kind of flattering Jesus with compliments. And this is where the danger of flattery must be guarded against because people often use flattery to really just prepare the way to work out their plot and plan in people's lives. This is the nature of flattery so often. The Bible warns to be careful of flattery. Proverbs tells us in chapter 26, verse 28, a flattering mouth works ruin. That's pretty direct. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So the Bible warns us, be careful of flattery because many times it's used to prepare the ground for somebody to just work out their selfish plan and get something that may not be so good. And if you think about it, I can be honest about myself, there's really not that much about me that's impressive. 
So when the compliments start coming, I instantaneously have a red alert starting to go off. I'm really not that impressive. You're really not that impressive. Sorry if that discourages you, but I said I'd be honest. We're not really that impressive. So when somebody really starts complimenting, I, I just start wondering. That's an awful lot of compliments for some rather impressive people. And the Bible warns us to be careful of flattery. They flatter Jesus and then verse 22, they launch that loaded question. They say, tell us, Lord, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the loaded question. At this time, the Roman government occupied and ruled over the land of Israel and they levied all kinds of taxes against the people. Now, the tax that's being referred to here in this question, no doubt, is the poll tax. And the poll tax was basically a tax of one denarius. And it was a tax that every adult Jewish citizen in Israel had to pay, and it was paid as tribute to Caesar. The poll tax, really, if you simplified, it was basically a tax for the privilege of existing. For the privilege of existing under the reign and the rule of Tiberius Caesar. It was a tax for existing under his authority. And it was one denarius paid to really pay tribute to acknowledge Caesar's reign and to acknowledge your support of Caesar's rulership. And most people despised this tax. Some people even fanatically opposed it. And it wasn't so much a financial issue because it was worth about one day's wages. It wasn't so much a financial issue as much as it really was more of a moral and spiritual issue. Because many, especially fanatical Jews, believed, listen, we have no king but God. We have no king but God. And therefore, to pay tribute to any other king, that's counter-spiritual. That, that opposes what we believe. That's paying tribute to another king. And it was a political and righteous debate that people are willing to die over. Many who were fanatical Jews felt very strongly, and civil law required the tax... But fanatical religious conviction opposed the tax to a great extent. So you can see how this is a loaded question, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? They think they have him in a catch-22 here. The emphasis is on that word, or. Should we pay tribute or not? Should we or shouldn't we is the question. And it seems like Jesus has two bad options. Because if he says pay the tax, pay the poll tax, he would clearly anger many Jews that were fanatical about their opposition to it. He would clearly irritate those who disliked Rome's government and those who opposed this tax being put upon them, which they felt was wrong. And he could even be giving the impression in their eyes that he's sort of not in support of direct allegiance to God somehow, and therefore he might lose his popularity if he says yes. Now, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, the poll tax, now he's being seen as politically challenging the Roman authority. And he would become vulnerable to even being painted, as I said, as inciting a religious rebellion against the authority of the government. And he could even be arrested and turned over as a criminal, as a rebel in the society. So it seems like they have Jesus backed into a corner here and like he has no good answer for this. But verse 23 says that he perceived their craftiness and said, why do you test me? Again, take notice, Jesus is never fooled. He's never deceived by anyone. We're great at pretending and fooling each other. Never works with God. Jesus perceived the answer and, and the reason, excuse me, behind the asking of that question. And that's why verse 24, he then says in response, show me a denarius. Whose image and whose inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So Jesus takes what the enemy intends for evil you see what he does? He turns it around for good. And he takes what the enemy intends for evil and he turns it around for a teaching opportunity to use it for instruction. He first says, let me see a denarius. Again, a denarius was worth about a day's wage. It was the coin, silver coin minted and circulated by Tiberius Caesar, the ruler in that day, and it was used to pay the poll tax that they were referring to. And Jesus then asked the question when somebody hands him a denarius, he takes it and he probably holds it up and he says, whose image 
And whose inscription, verse 24, does it have on it? Now, whenever new emperors came to power, it was common to mint new coins with their image on them and to put those coins into circulation among their empire. And those coins in that day had the image of Tiberius Caesar, the present ruler, and the inscription on the coin said Supreme Pontiff. So it was a tangible reminder, the money they used every day, that they were under the rulership and the authority of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And Jesus, therefore, asked them the question as he holds the coin. Tell me, he says, you want to know if you should pay the tax? Let me see a piece of money. He says, whose image and whose inscription is on this money? And they have to answer honestly, verse 24, uh, Caesar's. That's Caesar's image. And that's Caesar's inscription. Reason, he's the one who created the money. He's the one who supplied the money and he's the one that put the money into circulation. So the simple logic is if he created it and his image of ownership is on it, then I guess it belongs to him ultimately, doesn't it? That's why we see Jesus, verse 25, say in response, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. So they try to trip Jesus up spiritually and civilly. So he addresses both issues here, and he changes the or to an and. They say, should we pay tax or not? Jesus says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. The first thing he does is address the civil question, render or pay back. Literally, that's what that word render means. When you look at it, it means to pay back. It implies a debt is owed. So Jesus says, render or pay back to Caesar, the government, the things that are Caesar's, that belong to him. Again, Jesus' question was, whose image is on the coin? Who created the coin? Where did you get the coin from? What is its origin? Who offers you the usage of this coinage? Well, Caesar did, the Roman government. Whether they liked the government or not, whether they supported the government or not, whether they agreed with the government or not, the truth of the matter was, it was they were living under the umbrella of the Roman government in that day. And they benefited in ways from that government. That Roman government is what created and maintained and operated their national security, kept them safe militarily. The Roman government supplied their public roadways and maintained their public roadways. The Roman government is the one that supplied the economy that they all use, their judicial system. So Jews are recipients and participants in the privileges and services of the government of which they were under. And therefore, Jesus says, in light of the fact that you are participants and recipients of the services of the government that you're under, he says, you're indebted, therefore, as a citizen. The governor has a right to require this of you. He has a right, and you have an obligation to fulfill. And can I say the same principles apply for us today civilly as well? in the nation that we live on, in, in the government that we're under, whether we like our government, whether we agree with our government, whether we support completely the government, our president, the governor, the mayor, whatever it may be, we are citizens nationally of this country and we dwell under the umbrella of its authority. And we, just like the Jews in that day, honestly benefit from the covering of our government and the operation of the many things that it supplies to us. We are recipients and beneficiaries of things supplied to us, like national security that's supplied by our government to keep us safe through a standing military. We are recipients and beneficiaries of public roadways and public roads departments that clean and plow and salt our roads so that we can get in to worship God in a comfortable place in a day when the weather's bad outside. We benefit from money and circulation in an economy that we use. We have personal freedoms. We have a judicial system. We have a police department that keeps order in society, a fire department, many benefits. And because of that, the Bible says, since we are participants in those things, we have an obligation to pay our taxes to a government 
that supplies these things that we benefit from in our culture. Romans chapter 13 addresses this. You might want to jot in your notes Romans 13, 1 through 7. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority that exists except from God, and those authorities are appointed by God. There, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and will bring judgment against themselves. He then goes on to say, for because of this, talking about the authorities that exist in a culture, governmentally, police departments, political officials, he says this, therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, the Bible says. For these are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So the Bible says we should respectfully fulfill our obligation as citizens. We should pay our taxes. We should be obedient to the laws of our land. We should represent ourselves as good citizens. Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or governors or those sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Listen, the simplicity of it is this. As Christians, we should be the best citizens in the United States of America. As Christians, we should be the citizens in this country that the police department says, oh, I love Christian people. That the political leaders say, I love Christian people because of the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves among our society out of respect for what our government and the authorities that exist civilly and politically around us represent and that we're not always fighting against them but respecting them, paying our taxes, obeying the laws, being in compliance and in cooperation with their purpose according to the scripture of what they exist for. God says that even police officers and such people they're God's ministers. That's what the Bible says. God's ministers you get pulled over for speeding on the way home when the officer walks up don't say hi officer Johnson say good afternoon minister Johnson you never know what might happen when we realize who they are they're God's ordained ministers to help us in this culture and therefore God says through the taxes and things we do they should be supported and supplied to accomplish God's purposes for what they exist on this earth. Now, Jesus then turns that same principle to the greater issue of addressing spiritual things. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then he says, and, notice he changes, it's not an or issue, he says, and render to God what is God's. What does Jesus mean by that? Render to God what is God's. Well, what, or should we better say who, bears the image of God? You and I do. Whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription? Caesar's. Okay, if his image is on it, he's the owner and the originator of it. If his image is on it, pay back to him what belongs to him. And Jesus says, render to God what belongs to God. Who bears God's image? Genesis 1.27 says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In the same way, they were indebted to Caesar because his image was on the coinage that they utilized. We bear God's image. Our lives are made in the image of God. God's ownership is over our lives as a creator and a maker. We're indebted to God because our origin is from Him. The image of His ownership is on your life. God created us, and because of that, He put our life into circulation. He put breath into our lungs. He's continued to keep breath in your lungs during the time that you've been sitting here during this Bible study. He's keeping your heart beating. Everything you experience in this life, every benefit of your physical existence in your life and every aspect is a gift from him. The Bible says in him we live, we move, we have our being. And therefore Jesus says in light of that, since we're made in God's image, we should render or pay back to God what we owe him 
And what do we owe him? Our lives. We should render to God with what we owe him, and that's your life. How do I go about that practically? Well, first of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would surrender your life over to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and that you might become a child of God. The Bible says, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, that you'd submit yourself to Jesus Christ. And let the Lord save you and become a child of God. Not just his creation, but become a child of God. And for those of us who are already believers, we should surrender every area of our lives over to his total lordship. We should acknowledge our lives really don't belong to us. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul begs us. Isn't it interesting that the Bible has to beg us to present our lives to God? It kind of sounds strange almost. Paul says, I'm begging you. I'm begging you in light of all God's done in saving you and giving you life. I'm begging you, would you present your life completely in devotion to God? We need to remember it is a scriptural truth that my life is not my own. The Bible teaches that we truly belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own, the Bible says. If you embrace Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are a purchased possession. You've been adopted into God's family. And truly, my life is not my own. It's God's. He has the right to rule over my life. He's entitled to it. I should pay back God by giving him every area of my life in every way. Now, though that may be a mentally accepted truth among Christians, if we're honest... If we're honest, though we assent to that mentally, we say, yeah, my life's not my own. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we assent to that. The problem is, is a lot of times that's not a practice spiritual reality the way we live out our lives. Many a times as believers, we can be guilty of beginning to live our lives very selfishly and acting like our lives are our own, doing whatever we want with our life. And being self-willed and pursuing our own wishes and our own will. And we almost act. I'm going to go so far to say we almost act as if God owes us something. And we want to do our own thing and pursue our own agenda. And, and, and we want to walk around like God owes me something. What a backwards mentality of what the Bible teaches. That's completely contradictory to what the scripture teaches us where we begin at times to selfishly live like our lives are our own. Have you began to do that recently? Jesus says, oh, time to take inventory. Again, let's go back to what I said at the beginning. Oftentimes, we're so concerned about how we spend our money. Jesus says, wait a minute. How are you spending your life? Are you using your life to pay back God in every way that you can? Are you using your life to... Give it over to him for his purposes and his plans. As Jesus says this, render to God the things that are God. It says the people realized, man, he outwitted us again. And verse 26 says they marveled. They marveled at what he just said. It, let me say a few things in conclusion and, and hear me before we close. First of all, by way of application, in response to what this text teaches us, in response to what it teaches us, if we are pretending and playing games, let's put an end to it. If we're pretending and playing games, there is no better time than to repent and to cut it out. In any area that we're pretending. And this morning, if in some way we know, honestly, that we've been cheating or holding back in some way from giving our fellow man what is right, maybe neglecting to pay debts financially, maybe withholding taxes in ways that we shouldn't be unethically. You know what? Let's submit ourselves to what's righteous and make proper restitution 
Romans 13 says, Owe no man anything except the debt of love. And most importantly, perhaps we've been holding back from God certain aspects of our life that truly belong to Him. Hey, this morning, have you been withholding from God what you should be rendering to God? Have you been holding back and withholding from God in any area of your life or your life as a whole? If so, this morning, as we conclude in a final song of worship, look, let's be responsive to what the Spirit of God is showing us. And maybe this morning is a great opportunity not just to sing a final song and great praise the Lord, hallelujah, and walk out of here, but if we've been holding back from God to do business with the Lord and through His grace and the power of His Holy Spirit, recommit ourselves afresh to Jesus Christ. And to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been holding back. I've been withholding this area of my life, or I've been holding back my life from you in the fullest sense. And so, Lord, today I'm giving it over. Take all of me. Take control of me. Lord, do in me what I can't. I just, I surrender, Lord. I want to serve you with my whole heart. Listen to what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 10. It says, What does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's bow our heads and pray together, and we'll have our musicians come back. Father, we thank you for the word of God, and I thank you that your scripture is truly that, that it is a word of from God for our hearts, our lives, and our minds and that you love us enough, Lord, that you communicate with us and that you share with us in your love for us. God, you know what is best for me and for all my brothers and sisters in this room and Lord, we want to live right before God and before men. So, Lord, search our hearts. Do in us whatever it is you need to do by your Spirit's ministry this morning and let us be responsive. As we sing even now, Lord, right where we're standing and where we're at, may your Holy Spirit bring us to the place where we come in full submission to you in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be responsive to you in this hour. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.